The last time Newcastle podiatrist Stephen Boskill joined me, we were talking about caring for the feet of children. Today we're looking at caring for the feet of adults, especially those who have become elderly. Stephen, thanks for coming in again and joining me. Thank you, Iris. You mentioned briefly last time about corns and children getting corns as well. Will you tell me a bit more about these sometimes very painful things and what causes it? Okay, well, look, uh, corn is uh, sometimes confused with a wart, but we'll come on to that later. A corn is basically an impacted piece of skin um, that's reacted to adverse pressure. What happens is that, the, uh, say, on the bottom of the foot or perhaps where a, um, a toe is rubbing against a shoe, the skin will chafe and become um, abraded. It will start to impact, and instead of just sloughing off, it will often become harder and harder and very, very compressed and um, actually form a definite nodule. The uh, Latin term for it is heloma durum, which means like a seed of wheat, mm. and that's where the, like a little bead of wheat or corn, and that's where the term oh, came right. from. Yes. Yeah. I know from past experience and that sometimes you can just sort of pick at these things and, and that's the, the piece that will come out of them. If it's on your toe, they become quite hard and solid and, and painful. That can be done. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. they're fairly lightly uh, impacted yeah. and they will come out fairly readily. And other times they're quite well um, attached to the body and needs to be carefully cut out. And I stress the word carefully. If you do happen to have one, the trip to the podiatrist is the right place to go rather than fiddle on your own? Oh, absolutely. Look, you find people come in and it, it horrifies me sometimes. People have used corn pads and medicated corn pads i'll make that uh, difference there the ordinary deflective corn pads which are just round pads of rubber or foam they're okay but the medicated corn pads contain an acid which can cause quite a violent reaction on the foot uh, diabetics are especially warned never to mm -hmm. use them people with bad circulation or potential uh, risk of infections or immune um, uh, suppressed people uh, should never use these things and really i don't think they're a good thing to be sold because people come in having used these things. Sometimes they, they're lucky, the corn comes out okay, but other times the toe comes, uh, becomes infected, inflamed and quite angry. So mm. the, it just goes from bad to worse in actual fact? Well, it can do, yeah. yeah. And look, as I say, if diabetics are foolish mm. enough to use them, um, they can end up losing a foot or a leg. As bad as that? Oh, yes, yeah. With, with infection mm. sets in and gangrene yeah. starts, yes. Yeah. So they're not good things really to be playing with. Obviously. <laughs> Do they reoccur once you've got rid of the original one? Do they come back? That's a yes and no answer. Um, in the ideal situation, I stress the word ideal, if you can take the corn out completely and bring the skin back to its... Uh, sort of original integrity which you mm. can't really do because the, it's the top layer of the skin that becomes the epidermis which becomes impacted and it tends to leave a mm. crater and a mark um, but if you can get that out um, completely and you can remove the pressure that's causing the corn then there is a chance it won't come back but in general terms they do tend to recur but if you manage them well by regular visits um, appropriate treatment mm. you know either orthotics biomechanics footwear advice padding da 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 um, they can be managed reasonably well. The other common one that we hear about is bunions. A, what is a bunion and what causes it? Uh, well, that's uh, what we call the, the dreaded bunyip. <laughs> uh, look, there's essentially two types of bunions. Um, there's the most common one, which is on the big toe joint. Mm. We all see sort of the, the classic grandma's toes where the, mm. the big toe joint has pushed out into a big bulge and it's red and shiny and the big toe is often 
heading east and west across the foot, either over the second and third toes or under the second and third toes. Um, that's what we call a hallux valgus or a, a deviated toe. But the bunion itself is the uh, head of the first metatarsal, or the big, the big toe joint, essentially, um, becoming very prominent and pushing outwards. The other bunions uh, are tailor's bunions. They're on the opposite side of the foot, on the fifth toe uh, joint, mm. where they become very prominent and pushed out. The reason they were called tailor's bunions is years ago the tailors used to sit cross-legged and then the little toes would rub on mm. the tables and become inflamed and respond to the pressure and become enlarged and form a tailor's mm. bunion. What causes them? Um, look, essentially it's an um, inherent foot uh, mechanical problem which causes the, well, how do I put it simply, causes the big toe joint to uh, what we call sublux or deviate and it mm. pushes out. And what happens is that as the foot rolls in, a classic cause of this probably is most common cause is pronation. As the foot rolls in, it tends to um, roll in the inside of the foot. And instead of the big toe and the foot just pushing off nice and straight, we get a sideways pushing force on the big toe all the time, which pushes it to the outside of the foot. Um, that causes the uh, big toe joint to what we call sublux or to actually sort of start to move apart. And then the joint integrity becomes weaker and weaker. And that uh, vicious cycle occurs. Mm. And so what happens is the foot starts putting more pressure as it gives away. And mm. so the whole thing gets uh, bigger and bigger. Yeah. Is this why you often see them in the older person? It's because by this stage, the foot and the bones have started to wear after several years of walking that way. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, as I said before, we have this... I think I mentioned last time a fellow called Wolf said they have Wolf's mm. Law that bone will change um, with the forces put upon it. So we get a twofold whammy happening here. The joint integrity is compromised. We start getting that long-term pressure. As the toe starts to deviate, then the pressure becomes greater and greater, pushing it across. Mm. The joint, as we said, subluxes or moves apart, but also the pressures on the bone then cause actual joint changes and bone changes within the uh, joint surface and then we start getting extra bone reinforcing in different places so the, jo the joint not only sort of destroys itself but also tries to compensate by extra bone growth. So how do you treat that? Well getting back to the old chest again isn't it it's uh, mm. um, treating the cause as opposed to the symptoms so the ideal thing if we go back to the ideal world is to go back to prevention mm. so we have foot screening at an early age if we can get a young foot and stop the bad mechanics taking place as the, the development of the foot takes place while it's still growing and before it's actually fully calcified or become hard, mm. then that's a good chance. The other thing is addressing the biomechanics, the need for orthotics if necessary, and also correct footwear advice. You know, don't wear high heels, don't wear pointed shoes, ideally. So when you've got someone who, let's for argument's sake, say is in their 40s, late 40s, they're starting to feel as if they'd got a bunion coming and they, I'm thinking about a lass I know. And she said to me the other day, I think I've got a bunion coming. Is that too late to start to, to do something about her walk? No, that's a case of call for bunion man. <laughs> Go to the podiatrist and get a good biomechanical checkout and find out what's happening. I mean, it's not too late. I mean, ideally... It would have been good mm. to have had it before even the symptoms started manifesting. But no, it's not too late. It's never too late. And the thing is that people are very ready to rush into surgery. But the thing is that surgery has improved. The techniques have improved a lot. But there is always that risk you come out, can come out worse off than when you came in. And I'm always saying to people, look, try everything else bar surgery. Mm. If all else fails, then contemplate it. 
and you know, then you won't be disappointed mm. if the surgery does fail. And the other thing I should stress here is that often the surgery will actually mechanically re-correct the uh, alignment of the toes, but it won't correct the underlying cause, say the adverse pronation or the mm. foot mechanics. Um, and so once the surgery has been done and you go back to walking on the foot with the same old causation mm. taking place, mm. you'll be back to where you were, if not worse. Do they tend to run in families? Oh, that's a good pun. <laughs> and totally unintended. <laughs> well, yes, they, look, they do to a degree. They're not inherited as such. Mm. But um, what happens is that every child has obviously has 50% of his mother's genes, 50% mm. of his father's genes. So you inherit various body characteristics. And um, it should be stressed, actually, with bunions, too, that it's not necessarily footwear that causes it because there's classic cases of people in third-world countries that have whopping bunions that are never their feet have never been near mm. a shoe. So it, it's an intrinsic thing in the foot, but it can be made worse by footwear. Um, so having said that, yes, look, if you've got um, a familial tendency to have flat feet or da-da-da, then there's a good chance that you might have that feet. And often you get people coming and saying, oh, gee, I've got my mum's toes, you know. Mm. You're listening to Wellbeing, and my guest today is Stephen Boskill. Stephen, in the course of your work, you must see a whole lot of problems that arise from people with diabetes. What are the common problems that you see as the result of somebody having diabetes? Okay, if I just sort of redefine what the three major aspects of mm. uh, diabetes and the feet are, look, apart from the eyes, of course, that's mm. the other thing that diabetes will um, commonly attach, but I mean, ultimately, it's an insidious mm. disease that will attack every part of the body if left unchecked. Um, the major foot problems really fall into about three categories. That's the primary one probably is loss of sensation. So that's mm. you can get a complete anaesthesia, starts off with pins and needles, different altered sensations within the foot um, to a point where you can lose complete sensation absolutely and totally. And so I've seen uh, a person in the North Shore Hospital with a, uh, a raging ulcer through their foot and you can literally pass a biro or a, a pen straight through the foot and mm. wobble it about in front of the person and he can't feel a thing. It's absolutely mm. dead. It's got no touch. Um, so that's one thing. What happens, that's why it's called my diabetes myelitis. It mm. actually destroys the myelin insulation on the nerves, which stops nerves conduction. Okay, and that we get what we call diabetic neuropathy. The other thing is that you get a decrease um, in the ability to heal um, because the glucose sugar levels mm. in the blood alter the cell uh, ability to operate and so we're prone to infections and also reduced healing so we get a two-fold whammy here is that say a normal person i say normal mm. the normal foot um it could say have a stone in the shoe you'll feel it straight away and think well hell you know scrape it out mm. and you might have a little cut and perhaps you'll just dress it or if you're fairly healthy you might just give it a clean and that's okay mm. but a diabetic in the extreme case may not feel a nail or a stone in the shoe and it might rub for days and then of course we've got the other whammy a moist environment as we talked about before a lovely mm. uh, little incubator for bacteria and stuff um, they won't feel the wound the wound there the healing is compromised the whole tissue ability to, to repair itself is just completely compromised and then we get this lovely infection raging and it can rage and rage and rage and they don't know what's happened and then of course you can mm. ultimately get um, uh, a complete gangrene taking place and the other thing that happens is you get a loss of uh, circulation in diabetes with mm. calcification of the arteries and you can often see this on x-rays, you see the arteries were just sort of ghosted um, mm. with the calcified uh, arteries. So we get a decreased uh, uh, circulation as well. So we've really got a sort of trilogy of 
really bad things happening there. Mm. So that's the, the major thing that happens. So in answer to the original question, the major things we do see in diabetes is um, the, the neurological effects, and then we see ulcers occurring. And sorry, there is another thing I should mention about diabetes. With the nerve sensation, a lot of our joints are controlled Say, mm. are controlled. The joints are controlled by nerves. So, a good experiment to try at home, for example, is to say, get someone to sit down, close their eyes, hold their arms up, and just get them to mirror one hand with the other hand. So, if you just move one hand and move mm. it backwards and forwards, it's amazing how accurately they can position the other hand in space because the nerves are conducting through the joint um, areas and mm. through the brain and telling you the position of the joint. So what happens is in the foot, if the nerves are destroyed, it doesn't know where the joints in the foot are, and so we get a progressive de- collapse and destruction of the joints in the foot called a Charcot's joint. And so not only do we get these bad healing or, or poor healing structures, mm. but we also get a major deformation and collapse of the foot, which then puts adverse pressure all over the place, and we've got big problems mm. then, yeah, big mm. problems. Does this happen with both diabetes 1 and 2? Ultimately, yes, but in the type 1 diabetes, which is insulin controlled mm. and tends to occur uh, early in life, there's a longer um, chance for the adverse changes to take place if it's not controlled, so they tend to manifest more readily. Mm. But certainly in type 2 diabetes, if they're uncontrolled, they will progress to an insulin control diabetes. And say if people are obese, poor hygiene, poor self-care, uh, we can get these sort of problems manifesting, most mm. certainly. You mentioned about the the circulation for these people. It's not always good, to say the very least. Is the poor circulation, can it be attributed to something else as well as diabetes, for example, as the result of smoking? Well, look, smoking is a real bad one for circulation. Nicotine is a very powerful vasoconstrictor. In other words, it constricts the vessels. And so when you smoke, all your peripheral uh, blood vessels just close right up. And that's why sometimes you can feel cold. And um, really, say if a diabetic is to smoke, it's like playing Russian roulette with an almost full mm. chamber of bullets. Yeah, so it's really, mm. really bad. And smoking is probably one of the major problems for arterial vascular disease. Does alcohol and illegal drugs, do they have a part to play in this as well? Well, I'm not a real expert on the illegal drugs, but I mean... You know, I'm thinking yeah. about pot and, and, you know, some of the others, heroin, I, that sort of thing. Would they affect it as Honestly, well? to be honest with it, Iris, I couldn't give you a definite answer on the illicit drugs so much, but certainly, look, alcohol, to a degree, um, it's a good servant but a very bad master. Now, they say that drinking a glass of red wine mm. or so is good because it tends to loosen up the platelets in the blood and helps propagate good blood flow. But if taken to extremes, of course, it's very deleterious. And the big problem, jumping back to the diabetes with alcohol, mm. is the control of the blood glucose levels, and so that upsets mm. that. So, look, as far as the illicit drugs go, I don't know what quite happens to that. I know that if anybody takes them, well, I mean, you're playing Russian roulette again, aren't you? you <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's a stupid right. thing to go and do. Yeah. So um, I don't know what definite effects. But certainly there's lots of different drugs that do interact. So, again, if people are having problems in that area, they could, should consult their podiatrist and then the podiatrist can push them on, say, to the pharmacist or doctor to to check any medications. But nowadays it's it's getting fairly good. When they have problem with bad circulation, for example, and we'll leave the illegal drugs to one side, at what age do you usually start to see somebody come in with poor circulation from, from smoking? Oh, that's, that's a very good question. It depends really on the severity of smoking, the amount they smoke, and also it's, look, it's to a degree it's a genetic draw. Mm. When I've seen people that have smoked all their lives in their 90s, they seem as healthy as anything, 
and then other people can just smoke a few cigarettes for a short period of time. They come down with emphysema or other things. So there's mm. no real hard and fast um, time you can say that. It does depend, I think, on diet, lifestyle, as I say, and the big thing I, I really believe is genetics. Mm. Now, another name I've heard of is a neuroma. What's that? Right. Now, neuromas are, tend to find them more commonly in, in females because of their constrictive footwear. Mm. What it is, it's the digital or the nerves to the toes of the foot go in between the, the long bones of the foot, which are called the metatarsals, mm. and then if the foot isn't operating properly or it's crammed into a shoe, the whole nerve becomes irritated in between the he- normally the heads or just back from the heads of the uh, long bone, the metatarsals, and it becomes swollen, which turns into a neuritis, and then ultimately it becomes very nodular and very large and forms a neuroma. The symptoms of that is like when you walk, it's like an electric shock or a burning pain, a hot burning pain in between the uh, toe, normally between the third and the fourth um, metatarsal mm-hmm. heads. It's the most commonly described area. And um, you'll get a radiating shooting pain, say, with every step that flies up into the toes, and it can even come back up the foot and up the leg. So it's all tied up with the neurological mm-hmm. status of the foot and within the, the, the shoe compressing the foot and the status of the foot. Is the first treatment for this to change the footwear? Yes, essentially. Mm-hmm. Have wider footwear. Um, that's certainly that's the major cause of the problem. Mm. It can be caused by pronation. So again, you need to get that addressed by mm. seeing a podiatrist to have a look at some kind of uh, orthotic or footwear mm. advice, or perhaps not necessarily an orthotic, just some simple device, just to address the um, the, the nerve compression. Do they run in families too? Well, not necessarily. I, I mm. can't sort of say they do. But I mean, again, if you've got the large, a very broad foot, there's. You know, like years ago, there wasn't such much of a choice for females in footwear, mm. but now we've got a lot more wider range of footwear. We probably tend to see less, but look, I would say no. Nowadays, no, they're, it's an they're individual thing. thing. Yeah. How do you treat a, a neuroma other than changing the footwear? Okay, well, the um, as I said, the, the nerve compresses. So what I try to encourage my patients to do, we uh, I make a, a little toe prop that goes underneath initially, um, which tries to move one of the metatarsals out of the way. Um, I was nickname it my Playtex method, where we try and lift and separate the, the joints in the foot <laughs> to give some room. <laughs> Sorry, stop laughing, Harris. <laughs> to, to get some room in between the the, uh, the metatarsal heads to allow the nerve to to have space, just to try and take that inflama- inflammatory pressure off it and see if it settles down. That can be quite effective, but it's a very very tickly thing to get right. Mm. And so often, that's why I often give it to my patients and say, look, just try this little device, see where it's most comfortable. Then we can incorporate that either into an in-shoe device or perhaps an orthotic. Mm. If they're badly pronated, of course, that's looking at an orthotic and, again, the footwear. The other thing is that um, you can get uh, a steroid injection by a GP mm. into the nerve. Um, that can be quite effective and it can stop the pain. But the danger here is, um, the analogy I use here, it's a bit like if the fire alarm goes off, you go down and chuck a bucket of water on what you think is the fire and mm. disconnect the alarm and then you go back to bed but the fire can be smouldering, building up heat and it'll burst out again. Same thing with the steroid injections. It can settle the problem down for a bit but you keep walking on the nerve and then the thing's still grinding away but you haven't got the pain. And when the effects of the steroid wears off, the thing's back with a vengeance. Mm. So really, again, we get back to the old chestnut of going back to what is the cause. Address the cause and then work from there. The other thing is that you can get surgical uh, excision of the neuromas and they're quite grisly mm. looking sort of stringy uh, rubbery sort of things when they're taken out mm. but I will stress if you're having that let's see a podiatrist first and just see if something can be done conservatively 
if you're going to have a neuroma done, make sure, if you can, that the surgeon will go through from the what we call the dorsal aspect or the top of the foot, not the bottom, because I've seen so many people with scars on the bottom of the feet from uh, neuroma surgery, and they're left with a problem of a nasty scar, which is often calloused and becomes just as problematic as the neuroma was. So always make sure it's now from the top if you can. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols, and today I'm talking with Newcastle podiatrist Stephen Boskill. Stephen, we seem to have sore feet at some stage or other in our lifetime. Can this often be caused by, I suppose, not walking correctly or not placing our feet correctly so that it comes in with pain into the back and, and to the legs? Is that the correct way of thinking? Oh, absolutely. Look, it's a chicken and egg situation. Bad feet will cause being the foundation of the body. Everything will have to adjust to a poor foot function. So the legs either rotate inwards, outwards, or bowed in, bowed out, da-da-da, up through mm. the hips, and everything adjusts. So everything is connected, knee bone connected to the thigh bone, etc., and vice versa. If the body isn't correct, then it can manifest down, say you've got tibial torsions or uh, different what we call femoral angles and Mm. things can affect the way the feet have to compensate. So it's very much so. And also that I tend to find nowadays, actually, a lot of young kids don't walk properly. I know Mm. my father was always on in my case when we were young, (laughs) walk upright and stop walking like a goon. Mm. But we do tend to see that our people slop and they walk from side to side instead of walking in a nice forward progression. Mm. And it's amazing just how much can change just by purely showing someone how to walk properly, swinging their shoulders, getting their shoulders articulating, sort of contra to the hips, they move in opposite ways. Say the left hip goes forward, the left shoulder goes back and vice versa. And Mm. just by telling people how to walk properly, it's amazing just the increasing in ease with which they do walk and you know things change they feel their body change with that one of the things that um i never cease to wonder at is particularly the youngsters who wear thongs and they sort of slop around with no proper walking system where they i don't know they just seem to flap around yes that that is right that's exactly uh, you need to get the other thing nowadays which i think could possibly be even a bit worse. It's easy to get the kids with the big shoes on, mm. huge tongues, laces all over the place, gaping wide, and this little foot floating around in this sort of mm. black hole, and they're, they're walking along. And, um, yeah, it, it does make a big difference. I mean, I, you tell kids, they come in and you say, look, lace your shoe on. Oh, I can't do that. It looks, you know, it looks mm. stupid. And you say to them, just try one. So often I get down, tie one shoe up properly, and I get them to walk up the corridor fast, and I say, look, what feels better? And they come like, oh, the one you did up feels much better. It yeah. does. It, it's If the foot isn't controlled properly, then obviously every time it hits the, the ground, and it's especially, say, with an interface of a thong, and the classic case is, look, try walking in wet thongs or slippery thongs. Exactly. They're all over the shop, isn't it? Mm. I mean, that's mm. the extreme uh, example of that. Your foot hasn't got good ground contact. And likewise, if it's slopping around in the shoe, the toes are going to go forward, hit the front of the shoe. That's why sometimes mm. I think perhaps it could be a bit worse than the thong. Then you start damaging the toenails. Some of these shoes can grip the ground quite heavily. The foot can actually move within the shoe, but then it's constrained from just sliding off normally, and then you get a sprained ankle. So if you're going to wear shoes, wear them that they fit properly, or otherwise go barefooted, I think. You mentioned about jamming toenails up against the, the point of the shoe. Can this lead on to having ingrowing toenails? Oh, absolutely. Also, tight, uh, tight socks and, or stockings can, over mm. a period of time, cause the toenails to ingrow. Uh, yes, and mm. so what happens is that... Um, Although the toenails seem fairly hard, they are, they're a different form of hair. They're just a more compacted form of hair or keratin, and so they will deform and start taking on a shape. Mm. So if you wear very, very tight socks, you can find that toenails will be 
come in grown as a result of that. But certainly, tight footwear will damage the feet, mm. and footwear that's very thin, you know, narrow, very sort of uh, slick shoes that haven't got enough room for the top of the toe, can cause the nails to become impacted and ingrown. And how do you treat those? Well, um, proper cutting if for a mildly ingrown toenail, can you can guide it out and just get mm. the uh, edges to come become free of the skin. Again, this is the old thing where people are told not to cut down the corners of the nails. Mm. If they do that, it's often they dig down trying to get a toenail out, but they won't get the full thing and leave a nice sharp spur on under the skin, and that becomes much worse. So if it is badly grown, don't muck around yourself, get it attended to. Conservative treatment is quite effective. If it's done routinely and regularly, good chance mm. you can get the nail to come out. But some cases, some nails are just wider, much wider than they should be, um, and they need to be operated on, and what we call a partial nail avulsion and matrix sterilisation is actually take part of the nail off and kill the nail matrix. That's where it grows from. Um, the way podiatrists do it is very good. It's a local anaesthetic. It's the chair uh, in mm. chair technique, so there's no need to go to a hospital and have full anaesthetics. People still do that, and I really can't see it's necessary to have a general anaesthetic for an ingrown toenail. And the nice advantage of the way that podiatrists do it is that there's no cutting or suturing, and the cosmetic results, especially for women, is that if it's done properly, you really can't tell it's been done afterwards. And in most cases, it shouldn't return. You often hear of elderly people who have a very thick toenail, which then becomes very difficult to be trimmed and, and looked after. Why does this happen? Is this just a, a personal thing or is it a result of something? Look, basically the nail, if I can put it in a sort of simple term, mm. a nail tends to push forward a bit like toothpaste squeezing from a tube. It's mm. extruding mm. all the time. So over the years, as the nail bed gets traumatised, sometimes if you look, again, just getting back to what mm. we're talking about, shoes hitting the end, end of the nails you'll get ridges across the nails which are called bows lines mm. they're showing the traumas of where you've had a nail bad bruise and it'll just mm. form a line where you're damaging the matrix now as you progressively damage the matrix over the years and or nutrition changes lifestyle changes the toenail doesn't extrude quite as cleanly and it starts to build up and it becomes thicker and mm. what we call yeah, onycoxics mm. uh, that's the technical term so or gryphotic nail and they do become very hard to trim so again it's better than trying to hack them away with a pen life, as I've seen people do, come and get them done properly. Mm. It's not that often they only grow. A full nail will take about nine months to grow, so it's not every week job. It's mm. every two, three months to the podiatrist. We talk about people going to a podiatrist. Are the costs of going to a podiatrist covered by government funding? For diabetes and other very urgent cases, the GPs now have a discretion to um, put people on what they call an enhanced primary care, an EPC program. Mm. Um, so, yes, that is covered by Medicare, and it's, the rebates are quite generous, actually, so that normally covers the full mm. cost of a visit. But in general terms, it's, no, it's not covered by Medicare. It's a private thing, and most health funds will uh, rebate on podiatry. Mm. In fact, I think all health funds will. If someone is not in a health fund they can go to their GP under the right circumstances and get a referral and then go on from yeah, there. Provided they have um, a condition that will get them onto the EPC list, yes. But mm. there are specific criteria for that. Otherwise, they just come as a private person and fee-for-service. Okay. There is a general level of fees, like there is a general level of, of GPs? Not Well, not really, but, I mean, it's because under the uh, consumer competition, infection, mm. da-da-da, mm. you're not allowed to fix fees. But I think the, the, I think most podiatrists run on a par. I mean, some 
charge yeah, a lot more, mm. others perhaps a bit less, but in general terms it's fairly much across the board, I think. If you need to go and see a podiatrist, an appointment is, is necessary. You can't just sort of front up and say, well, I've got a sore toe, etc. It depends on the practice. I mean, if someone mm. staggered into my clinic with a really bad toe, I, I try and squeeze them in yeah. Yeah, and just yeah. fix the problem as best as I could in the short term or perhaps they come back in an hour or something. Mm. I think most practices will do that. For normal run-of-the-mill, yes, it's an appointment. <laughs> and you don't need a referral either from a GP. Uh, Except pre- if you want the, the, oh, the pensioner. Right. Yeah. Yeah, pre- yeah. Podiatrists are what yeah. we call primary uh, diagnosticians, so mm. we have the right to come straight off the street then, uh, do what we need to do and refer you on. Stephen, thanks for coming in. I've been talking today with Newcastle podiatrist Stephen Boskill. Until we meet again, this is Iris Nichols on behalf of all the team, wishing you well and thank you for listening.